Hello, and welcome back to the HBAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Brian Johnson, founder and CEO of Project Blueprint. In this episode, I wanted to learn about how Brian was introduced to the field of longevity science, his view on how to make future generations proud, as well as how Project Blueprint works and will help people live longer, healthier lives. Without further ado, here's Brian Johnson. Right, Brian Johnson, thank you so much for joining me for the HBAN podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Brian, everybody knows who you are in this industry. You're well known not just within the longevity industry, but outside too. And the first question that comes to my mind is how did you get into this field? Was this something that you always thought about from like childhood and, and, and on, or? Was it a specific moment that made you a longevity uh, enthusiast? Take us through that journey, if you would. Yeah, I was anything but a longevity enthusiast my entire life. I ate sugar cereal for breakfast. I was out in the sun with no sunscreen. I shot loud guns and deafened my left ear. Like I did everything that was not conducive to a, a, a long lifespan. And I built several startups and I did grind culture. So no sleep, gained a bunch of weight. And after I sold Braintree Venmo, I was flush with cash. And I did this thought experiment where I said, uh, imagine that I live in the 25th century. We're listening to them talk amongst themselves, and they're marveling at what we did in the early 21st century that made intelligent existence thrive in this part of the galaxy. And you know, there's something about a thought experiment like that allows you to create some distance from time and place. When we look back at the 15th century or 16th century, we don't really care what they cared about. We just observe what they did and what happened, but we're not in that vortex of thought. And so that the separation from time. And I came to this conclusion that the singular thing that, that, that homo sapiens did was that we reoriented our reality to don't die. That basically death had always been inevitable as a species. And then with the birth of superintelligence, that our priorities change. Once you have the power of the gods at your fingertips, the only thing that matters, death is your only foe. And so the only the guiding philosophy for the 21st century is don't die, don't kill each other, don't kill the planet, and build benevolent and safe AI. Absolutely, absolutely. That was actually my next question. The the discussion you had at the Longevity Summit Dublin really opened my eyes. And I, I've actually always thought in that kind of context too, how can we make our future humans proud of us, right, in this mm -hmm. moment? And mm -hmm. I really found that powerful that you thought of that. And I appreciate it as someone who's a Politico and historian enthusiast myself. So let me ask you a follow-up question. So it sounds like you've always been on this transhumanist bend. If, if, if you're thinking about the singularity in 2014, that means you were one of the earlier adopters, people with the knowledge of this kind of idea of superintelligence and the singularity. So can you talk about AI and how you think it intersects with not just longevity, but also the broader world? Yeah, my understanding of reality really came from, I've read hundreds of biographies and I feel more connected to people of the past than perhaps people of the present day. And so you, when you look back at the different centuries, I really admire people who in their time and place were able to do something impossibly hard. And we look back, of course, and we observe these things are obvious, but in, that's really the question for us at this time. 99.9% .9 of what happens today will be forgotten to history. It just won't pass on. And I really created this relationship with trying to do things that were enduringly valuable. And I learned that from the past and I project that going forward. And what I learned from these biographies is that 
in a given time and place, the future is always present. It's just hiding in plain sight. By definition, everyone in every, each era is living in the past. You're living with the norms, ideas, customs of dead people. And the future is always present. It's just either not visible or you see it and reject it, or you see it and don't acknowledge it. And so I guess I was just posing the question, I do have this idea of the future of being human, but I really was trying to ask this question, what is possible in this time and place and map that practical observation to something that is tangible versus trying to just pull something out of thin air, like making up something that is actually not even feasible. Very fair. So just to continue on with this transhumanist, Ben, we're talking about the 25th century here. My estimation is that we'll be navigating the stars, hopefully by then. How do you feel about space exploration? Is that something that yeah. you about. It's it's something that a certain number of people in the world think is viable today for a variety of reasons, for practical things like infrastructure, for nation state security, for warfare. Low Earth orbit is interesting. Expeditions beyond is seen as interesting and potentially profitable, commercially profitable. I do wonder, as artificial intelligence progresses, I think it's reasonable to say that everything we care about today may mean nothing to us then. And I think it is potentially incorrect to imagine that our current priorities, needs, imaginations, ambitions will carry over to this next version of being human. I think in large part, I think that we're at a moment where superintelligence is going to rewrite reality. And it's not going to be the case that we are going to be the ones pushing this thing forward. It's going to be such a dramatic change that the only way we're going to thrive is when we embrace this evolving nature. And so I think it's just like a reminder of an invitation to be open to this new future and to be open to the possibility that everything we care about and think and value and our traditions and our norms and our customs won't carry over. <laughs> they, like we're, we're not going to be that thing anymore. I think it's a, it's a reasonable possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. Kurzweil always says it's impossible to imagine what happens after the singularity. It's a world we can't even comprehend. Even so, even the, like the singularity is so abstract. People are like, oh, that's something in the future is going to happen. No one can predict what's going to happen in three months. That has never been the case in the human race. If you knew the seasonal weather patterns, you were pretty well off. And even decades ago, you could become educated in something and plan on doing that given thing for the remainder of your life. You have one job. Now, people, of course, change careers and industries multiple times. And with the de development of, of technology, we have no idea what's at, you know, at early 2024, we don't even know. And so I guess this talk, I, the, things I, the words I use to explain the future, it's not gibberish. It's not like some imaginations of impracticality. It is absolutely tangible and practical and real. And it's the most real talk we could have right now. And it's basically like, how can we not die as a species? The thing is, don't die. It's something we play this game every day. Like we look both ways before we cross the street. We throw out moldy food. We change batteries in our, in our smoke detectors. We play don't die right now. The future is just getting really good at not dying. So yes, I 100% agree. And that's actually one of the things I talk about, like when I'm convincing people to accept and embrace the idea of longevity for political purposes, or just when I'm talking to friends and strangers, I make that point too. Everything we do today is in an effort to not die. That's why we live in houses yeah. 
yeah and go to the doctor when we have a cut or we're sick so i'm totally with you there i want to actually jump into a project blueprint in a moment but i just want to ask is project blueprint an effort to get to the singularity we'll just use that term is this ray kurzweil i'm sorry to go keep continuing going back to him but he's got me really interested in this space um, he always talks about a, a bridge to taking one bridge to the next in terms of yeah. like living longer and life extension. Yeah. Is that what pl- uh, Project Blueprint is, or is this how does this how does that kind of wrap into your uh, planning with po- Project Blueprint? Is this yeah. thing long term, or is this like a, a right now thing until we get to super intelligence? Yeah, it, it's both. It's both immediate and long term. In in this conversation, you and I are hyper focused on right now. I'm focused on what I'm going to say to you. You're focused on what you're going to say to me. I'm watching your expressions. You're watching my expressions. Like we are focused right now on this interaction. And we're also focused on don't die. Every single human on this planet. And given that we don't know very much how the future is going to evolve, we of course can imagine we have plans and we can map this out. But this is why don't die to me is so practical is humans were the dominant force of intelligence for tens of thousands of years. Homo sapiens have been the most powerful form of intelligence. We just created a new form of intelligence that is superior to us. And this interesting question arises, what do we do? How do we think? What do we do? How do we plan? What do we aspire to? What do we imagine? And the only thing to me, the only thing I know is I don't want to die right now. Now, like people can say that and walk across the street, uh, look both ways, then be smoking a cigarette. But it, it's really, I guess what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to say, okay, everyone, like we acknowledge there's a lot happening. It's overwhelming. It's confusing. It's uncertain. We really don't know what's going on. So let's, let me state this like maybe one different way. People often talk about this idea of goal alignment when that's spoken about in the form of AI and it's okay. Align AI with human values. Okay. So what are human values? (laughs) That's complicated. You have nation states that are trying to kill each other. You have individuals that are trying to kill each other. You have major battles of power and control. We have innumerable conflicting and cooperating goals. We're not one thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to map that to my individual self and say, okay, instead of me trying to solve goal alignment for the human species, can I solve goal alignment for myself? And then I looked at myself and I had the same problem. So Who's in charge? 10 p.m. Brian when he goes to bed or 6 a.m. Brian who wants a couple more minutes of sleep or like all these conflicts we know exist in ourselves. Who's in charge? The person who wants to lose 10 pounds or the person at the restaurant being like, I just want the brownie because today's a special day. So we have all these conflicts and we're not just one thing. We ourselves are a depiction of humanity where we don't have a singular goal. And so what I tried to do is I tried to say, okay, I, Brian Johnson, am a collection of 35 plus trillion cells. Can I get my 35 trillion cells to want one thing and align behind one thing? That's blueprint. And I basically decided I want to maximally slow my speed of aging. I'm going to measure myself and become the most measured person in human history. I'm going to find every single way my body dies in a given day, every molecular interaction. And then I'm going to apply all the scientific evidence and try to minimize as much death as I can to extend my life. And that's what I've done. And so this same philosophy applies to planet Earth. We treat planet Earth like we treat our bodies. We do whatever we want, whenever we want. Like we pollute uh, this Earth to our pleasure. And we do the same to our bodies. And so when you talk about how do we align with planet Earth, how do we align with AI, 
how do we line with each other? It's the same problem that I've done with myself. I try to make it very practical. There actually is a way we can think about this that doesn't cause, cause paralysis. When you said who's in charge, 10 p.m. Brian or 6 a.m. Brian, that that is that right there is where it clicked for me. That that mm. is fascinating because it really is a struggle for. And this is, I think, the issue with when people see what you're doing. I think a lot of people say, "Oh, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. It's too much effort. It's I don't know if I can commit myself. I don't know." If, but at the end of the day, it is a choice, and we, as not just individuals but as a collective world here, have a choice to prioritize not dying. And I think that, and, and I see a lot of uh, overlap with the longevity industry and the environmentalists should be buddies on, on that front. Yeah. Uh, there be a lot more overlapping interests with other groups, because I think ultimately at the end of the day, both Israel and Hamas and Palestine don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to die. Nobody wants to die. So I'm with you. It's, it's the universal truth. It really is. And it's, but it's so simple. Exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a, it's yeah, simple that you don't even think about it. It's just, but like, it, it feel it, it's something that needs to be said more. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I'm with you there. But on that point, just one thing, like I thought about this for 10 years. Like I actually, I've worked on this problem for 10 years, trying to find a singular thing that the 25th century would come that would they respect us for. It's that. It's the simplest possible idea. And oftentimes, this is exactly what happens in history. The most obvious revolutionary ideas are right there in front of it, just for the taking. And this is the only thing we care about as a species. So yeah, I think it really legit. It's not just a clever slogan. Like It is legit the no, rallying yeah. cry of the 21st century. I'm totally with you. I think that's why this field is really growing. And I think more people are not just I think people are coming to the conclusion that don't die is like a way to live. And I think there are people who are more into that than others, right? There are some people who take your route, but there's other people who maybe are just being more health conscious now. And because of the attention that you're bringing to this issue with don't die and everything you're doing with Blueprint, I think we'll get mainstream support sooner rather than later. So I actually wanted to jump into that topic, the media attention stuff. But yeah. first, can you just give our audience just a little background on Project Blueprint, what you're doing every day. Can you take us through your daily routine? Yeah. What are the goals? Like what's your goal in five years in terms of your data tracking and biomarkers? Yeah, if you can just go into that a little bit, I think everybody would. Yeah, like cool. Yeah, the idea is that the fountain of youth is one of the oldest stories in human history. And it's usually about people in a boat going to some temple, finding some elixir, and there you have it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pose a question in a similar vein, like an explorer, like Magellan or Shackleton or Lewis and Clark. And I wanted to say, if one were to implement the best science ever done in the field of anti-aging, what could be achieved? Nobody's done it. And so I, I have a team of 30 doctors. I've spent millions of dollars on this project. And so we do this process where we measure every single one of my organs. I'm the most measured person in human history. We take my data, we look at the gold standard scientific evidence, we then design a protocol, and I follow that protocol with exactitude. And so the idea is my body runs me, not my mind. So my mind is unable to decide if it wants to order something from a menu, it's not able to peruse the pantry if I want a snack. My mind can make no decision about what enters my body. Hmm. And it's almost a flip from monarchy of the British to democracy in the United States. I've freed my organs to speak for themselves and they have voting power. My heart can vote on my diet. So can my lungs, so can my pancreas and so can my liver. My mind, which is the monarch, can no longer have a say. 
So when you say your heart and your you know liver all have a vote, does that you're talking about you take tests and if say your liver is I don't know what the enzyme would be that you're looking yeah. at, or the, but um, or the protein or whatever it may be. But uh, you look at your bio, your data, and um, you say we need X more in my diet, or I need to have this type of sleep. So it's exactly okay. Exactly. Yeah. You take my liver or my heart or my lungs, any organ, and we then say if we tried to make this functionally and anatomically equivalent to an 18 year old, I'm 46, but if that was our goal, our really the ambitious goal, what would we do to achieve that? And then we look at the evidence and that's what happens. And so we really are, the organs speak directly. And so this kind of goes back to the previous conversation. If somebody in, in a situation where there's a, there's a conversation where a person can make a, a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice, we in society presume that person in that moment gets to decide what they do. But I would call that into question and say, what if your future self had equal say in what you did? What if you're, if you're 20 years old, what if you're 21 year old, 22, 23, 24, 25, so on until 80 years old, what if the collection of yous all had a vote? So it wasn't just 20 year old you deciding unilaterally what you do. And then 21 year old deals with the consequences. What if that were to change? And so what I'm saying is, we, of course, understand reality in the year 2023, where I, in this moment, decide everything I want to do. If I want to make up a reason why I want to eat this or that, I can offer a justification to myself and just do it. But what if the future of being human was not that? What if we understood all of ourselves as having equal say? It's a radical idea to our minds now, but that's always the case in society, where radical ideas seem extraordinary outlandish in the moment, and then it becomes a new norm. But you start breaking this apart because we really do have a hard time acting in our best interests. Like we all do. And if you don't believe me, of course, like you can quantify, I can quantify the amount of self-destructive behavior you engage in. I've done it to myself. I see what behaviors do in my body at a molecular level, right? Like we are a self-destructive species. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, that kind of, yeah, that does definitely tie back to what we were talking about with the 25th century. And it boils down to an individual level at that point. It can, will your 25, if you're 25, will your 30 year old self thank you for the decisions you're making at 25? And what will you wish you were focusing on at 25 when you're 30? So it, yeah. it, it, it yeah. definitely ties in there for sure. I'm a, a political advocate and A4LI is political advocacy. Yeah. So we care about the science, but I, I sometimes don't go into it too much. So can you explain a little bit the cutting edge technologies you're using? Are you partial to any specific method of, of measuring yourself or any clocks, any sort of uh, biomarkers, any therapeutics? Yeah. The way we, we structure this is for the longest time, human opinion was the dominant form. So it was like, a charismatic person with some interesting idea and they created a cool story, then people did it. And with what we do, story means nothing. Data is everything. And so we start with the basics of what determines all-cause mortality. What is the appropriate weight? What is, a per what is the appropriate cardiovascular capacity? What do the heart and lungs and liver look like? Age is the most correlated variable with disease and death. <laughs> Yep. Nothing more powerfully correlates. And so if you're chronologically 80, but your body's biologically 40, it's much more, it's much more relevant what your biological age is than your chronological age. 
And so we've basically taken a data first approach. We've looked at scientific evidence. And so we, we have clever things like we use these new DNA methylation clocks where just like people know their weight and they know how many social media followers they have, we know my speed of aging. What is my clock? My, is my clock one, like a normal speed of aging? Is it 1.2? So I age substantially faster or is it 0.69? And so currently my speed of aging, I've slowed at the equivalent of 31 years where now I, in a 12 month time period, I get September, October, November, and December for free. So while others age 12 months out of the year, I only age eight months out of the year. That's how much I've slowed my speed of aging. And I share all my data and others can do this. I've shared my entire protocol for free with the world. And so I basically have tried to encourage people to know that you have an aging clock that is either that's marching you towards disease, decay, and death. Know the numbers and know which things accelerate it and know which things slow it down. But it is, it's a knowable variable. And I think it's an interesting one because it's really motivational when if your friend is aging at 0.69 and you're at 0.12, like you're going to live half the life right. of that person. So when you say you share your data, are you sharing it in the hopes that other people will replicate your efforts or they'll be conscious about the fact that they have a biological age or what's yeah. the goal with sharing the data? It works on multiple fronts. One is we as a species, we're such a social emulating species. And so when you see one person doing something, it's so hard for others not to do it, especially when it affects something where youth is power. Everyone knows this. And the longer you can have the biological, your capacities uh, as a human, the better off you are. And then two is I'm trying to punch through the noise. Like we can get into all these details of DNA methylation and blink, but like my mom and dad, they just want to know what they eat for breakfast. Like they just want to be healthy. They just don't want their joints to hurt. They just don't want to have early signs of Alzheimer's. Like the, they really sincerely just want to know what to do. And so I'm trying to basically, I jokingly say blueprint is the best health protocol built in human history. Prove me wrong with your data. And it's an invitation, not a challenge. It's an invitation to say, okay, all you storytellers out there who are putting pushing this thing or that thing, post your data because we don't believe anything you're saying until you share your data. And it's to try to punch through because if you otherwise hang out in the scientific data land where scientists are debating, they're going to debate forever. You're, like, you're never going to know what to eat for breakfast. So in the meantime, when all of us want to know what to eat for breakfast, like we need an answer right now. And now science emerges, great. But like, no wasting time. And so I've really tried to punch through and say, there is a known way to do it. I'm an example. You do it, replicate it. And that's been the case. There's been thousands and thousands of people who have done this. And it's been, the data, data is very compelling. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to go off that a little bit, the average person, they want to know what to eat for breakfast, but in terms yeah. of being able to measure every variable, at least right now, it's not yeah. available to most people. Yeah. And yeah. when I speak to people about longevity, that's the number one pushback I get. This yeah. is not going to be available to the masses. It's only for the wealthy people. And every time my response is every technology in human history has been, most technologies in human history are end up being for the masses, right? My grandfather was telling sure. me stories about when he was in the depression and they took his refrigerator because it was such a status symbol. And now you can't find a house without a, a refrigerator. And so that's the little anecdote I use, but the point stands, technology gets cheaper as it you know becomes democratized. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, use for the mass. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is When do you see this being uh, adoptable for the masses? Right now. Absolutely right now. 
you can go to bed on time. You can make sleep your number one priority. You can stop eating junk food. You can stop eating sugar. You can stop your uh, social media addiction. Like Absolutely. Th there is no excuse for anyone in the entire world. You can start right now, and those things are power laws. You can stop smoking. You can stop drinking alcohol. And so this idea that somehow it's in the future or somehow it's only available to the rich, totally incorrect. Absolutely not true. And this is the thing I understand, right? I've been in place. I've been in a time in life where I was addicted to many things and I would make up any excuse to justify why I couldn't get myself in order. There's no excuse. Everybody can do it. It's just the, we can do it together. You can do it. We can do it. Everybody can do it. It's just, a, it's a zeitgeist change. And so I think it's appropriate that we have that expectation of ourselves. It's not a futuristic thing. But what about the tracking of data? So it, will there be some sort of, will Project Blueprint ever be inclined to release some sort of cheap testing kit that kind of replicates what you're doing? Or how can people test themselves for cheaper or sure. for- Yeah, okay. I mean, testing certainly is an important part. Right. And But I don't think it really deserves emphasis as a precursor to action. Okay. Everyone knows what it feels like to have a terrible night's sleep and to have a great night's sleep. Everyone knows what it feels like after you eat a, a burger, fries, and a milkshake. Right. No one's winning there ever, right? right? We all know this stuff. And so let's just not joke. Let's not kid ourselves that we don't know. We do know. And it can be done right now. And you don't need data to tell you the stuff is bad or good. We all know it. The, the, the data corroborates the bad feeling you, you have in your stomach after you eat a burger. So yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, no one's leaving the fast food place being like, God damn, do I feel amazing now? Like I feel ready to conquer life. No, you feel sluggish for 24 hours. Let me ask you a question. Do you think some people do because they're so addicted to the processed foods and the sugars and the junk food that it's like a dopamine high or? For 20 seconds. 20 seconds, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I continue to eat so much, right? How many times have you met somebody who's overweight or in a bad situation? Like I was there. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. And have you heard them extol? You know what, man? I'm just so happy that I'm 120 pounds heavier than I should be. Like I've never met anyone in my entire life extol the benefits of being fat. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I was I'm 50 pounds heavier than I was now. Like it was awful. I hated it. I had to unbuckle my top button of my pants. I was hopeless. I was powerless. Like I was there. It's awful. And like this is I hope this is encouraging. Like we can do this thing. It's a cultural shift where like we can do this together. It's not about the thing is like society is we are up against the power of the gods in its addictive power to make food that addictive, to like put it in front of our face. Everywhere we walk, we have sugary drinks. It's awful. It's really a bad deal for the individual right now. So I feel really bad for all of us. We're in a pretty bad spot. Yeah, that's why it takes both a grassroots and a grass tops effort, right? You need to get the masses to adopt and change the ways they're they're acting and power structures to make it happen. And so yeah. that's what we're doing here at A4LI, that's the whole goal yeah. The political advocacy effort. And I totally agree with you. We're getting close to time here. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. The first is I, I, I've had so many friends, family members, people in my political network who aren't longevity enthusiasts send me articles on mainstream media about you and say, do you know this guy, Brian Johnson? Look what he's doing. Oh, he's saying a lot of amazing things that they weren't saying before. And so mm -hmm. I see what you're doing as a positive for the industry. You're giving a lot of attention to a field that needs a lot more attention. Hmm. How do you feel the media attention has been for you? Do you think, are you happy with how you're covered? And how do you think it's affecting this field uh, at large? 
Yeah, I had two scientists approach me at a recent longevity conference, and they said, we confess we hated you initially. We will now tell you we love you because we thought you were tarnishing the field. We thought you were making a mockery of this. We thought you were embarrassing us. And they said, we thought that the future of longevity would come through nature papers and you know headlines about this thing and that thing. But you actually learned how to speak the language of the masses, right? Mm-hmm. It's through irony and humor and your, like, your, meme, game, like, your meme game is excellent, Brian. I guess. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, it's that's it's not a scientific paper, right? It's right. it's a picture of me holding a kettlebell and I'm nude. That's that's my evidence. That's how I share my data is look at me. I'm literally naked. Look at what I've done for three years to my body. And you tell me, like, how am I doing? Am I okay? And so th- that's the language of society. And yeah, it's rowdy. It's fun. I absolutely love it. And honestly, it's group therapy. People are cycling through this. I think society, a lot of us feel helpless and hopeless. And I understand that. Like when you're trying to be healthy and nothing around you is healthy and you're trying to do your very best to work a nine to five job and you have another part-time job at the night, like it's hard. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think we, I didn't realize I've been doing blueprint for a couple of years. No one cared. Like no one paid attention at all. Then one night it just blew up. And I think there's something really important here. I think it's a larger societal discussion. People want change. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's a societal problem we have. We're addicted to addiction. It's terrible. We're all losing. No one's winning here. And it's just, it's a really gigantic problem we have as a species. And so it's really touching something off. It's not really about me. Yeah, I know people like to mock me and that's great. It's fine. It's just part of the process of having the conversation. Absolutely. They, you're not doing something important unless people are hating on you. So <laughs> ignore the haters, Brian, for sure. But I, I definitely agree. One of the one of the roadblocks for this field is the lack of translation to the masses, right? It mm-hmm. is all scientific papers about this protein or this yeah. action in a cell, right? And yeah, yeah. nobody knows what anybody's talking about. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily simplifying it, but simplifying it and putting it into language that everybody understands and, and wants to speak in is so powerful, right? Exactly. And so you have quite a following on Twitter and I'm assuming that's going to continue to grow as the Project Blueprint continues to grow and this field continues to grow, right? You're at the forefront and I'm glad that someone level-headed and charismatic is leading the way. So Brian, I'm glad you're on the team here in this longevity effort. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So my last question as we're wrapping up here, and I ask all of my guests this, I'm looking for a nice sound bite here, a nice little, nice little clip from you. What gets you out of bed every day? What what gives you hope for the future? Just generally, what makes you smile in the morning? What gets you excited? Yeah. After 13.8 billion years in this galaxy and over uh, 4 billion years, I think that's right, on planet Earth, we are baby steps away from superintelligence. It, it could be the most extraordinary event in the history of our galaxy. And it's our moment to have. If we can rise above ourselves and our primitive, silly behaviors and rise to this moment, this could be more extraordinary than anything we've ever imagined. That to me is the most delicious opportunity ever in the history of this earth. 
Yeah. You just gave me some goosebumps there. I am totally with you. I feel very, I'm very fortunate. I was born when I was born and I'm able to at least push this effort forward, but it's not going to be people. It's not going to be just you and me doing this. It's going to take everybody on hopefully on earth, getting behind this effort yeah. to yeah. increase lifespan year over year for everybody. Right. Brian, with that, I think we're wrapping up here. Do you have anything you want to say to our audience? Any, anything where, anywhere where they can follow you? Yeah. I, I would say, hi, friend. I sincerely wish you all the best in life. And I would encourage you to consider going to bed at the same time every single night to have to make sleep your number one life priority. It is the most important meeting you have every single day, be on time every single night. And then get good sleep, get your head on straight, and then you can make another baby step. But this is totally within your power. And don't let society make you feel awful and sad. It's just, it's enough and we need to change. And when you change, we all change. So I hope we can do this together. Absolutely. Live long and prosper. Thank you, Brian, for making the time to join us today, as well as 100 Plus Capital for sponsoring today's episode. For those listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. H-SPAN will return soon. Let's live long and prosper.